So as we come to chapter 3 of Judges, we're in that timeline of about 1400 B.C. The nation of Israel is in their promised land. There's no more Moses. There's no more Joshua. And there's a lack of leadership. And in fact, we had seen a couple weeks ago in the verse by verse that it says after Joshua passed away that a generation, another generation arose after him in his timeline who did not know the, the work of the Lord. They didn't know the Lord nor the work of the Lord. It just takes one generation to forget or not even know what the Lord had done in a previous generation to establish the, the blessings upon that previous generation. Also, in the very end of this book, the last verse of this book in chapter 21 says that in that time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as I mentioned on the template of this book last week, it starts off with a degeneration and then deliverance uh, for these judges to arise who would be spiritual leaders to lead the people at various times in their generations. And then there's just this like fall into total depravity. But I mentioned the book's not necessarily chronological that way because that latter part, that very last verse that says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it really is connected to even the beginning of the time of the book of Judges. So as we come to the story of Othniel, the first great judge from the book of Judges, and the political, social environment that he was functioning in where God raised him up and set his spirit upon him, we need to understand that there arose a generation that did not know the Lord or the, the works of the Lord and the things of the Lord, and they also were a generation that did what was right in their own eyes. With that background, we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left there in Israel, that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known of any of the wars in Canaan, Israel. This was only so that that generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, the nations that were left there were the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he, the Lord, might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to be their sons. And, excuse me, and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rithathium, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rithathium eight years. When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathimim. So the land had rest for 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So this, is, as I said, is our first of the judges. There's quite a few judges. They're not called judges necessarily because they made good judgments, but they were leaders in a sense. So you have this void where these two tremendous personalities that led Israel, Moses out of the wilderness, excuse me, out of Egypt into the wilderness, 
arguably one of the greatest leaders in human history by anyone's accounting of what a great leader looks like. And then Joshua, who led the people into the promised land, also just an incredible leader. And then when you go from Moses to Joshua and they're gone, and a generation arises that doesn't know the Lord or about the Lord, they're kind of rudderless. And then everyone starts to do what's right in their own eyes. They were God's people in a covenant without good shepherds leading them and just wandering astray. They had been given their inheritance, all 12 tribes, really 13 because the Levites had common lands, but the other tribe, Joseph, was subdivided by the grandchildren, Manasseh and Ephraim. So there's really 13 territories given around. But the 12 tribes had larger territories where the Levites were strategically throughout the areas with smaller portions of land. They had their inheritance. It was given to them. It was measured out. It was cast by lots. God had given it to them. But when Joshua stepped into eternity, there was unfinished business. So they had received their inheritance. This is your inheritance. But they had to either completely destroy, which is what God commanded to do, the Amorites, the Canaanites that were in the land, or dry them out of the land, one way or the other. And we know that the people that were in the land, they had iron chariots. If you're looking for excuses to not finish the job, there's plenty of excuses to not finish the job. But here in chapter 3, we realize that so often how the Lord works is he's going to let it work together for good in their life to test them. We know so often when we give our life to Christ, there might be a number of things we're in bondage to or have a stronghold in our life, a foothold in the stronghold. It might be foul language, be drugs and alcohol, unbridled lust, um, strange flesh, all that kind of stuff that can be there. The sins of humanity have great depth with the devil helping them in that, even covetousness and all kinds of things. And what we find is when someone gives their life to the Lord, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, just now we're talking about the church and a Christian being born again, that the Lord, you know, the Bible says whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So we find that quite often when someone truly gives their life to the Lord, that God will deliver them from a good portion of what has a stronghold in their life. Now, some of us maybe were raised in the church, so you've just kind of that gradual growth in the Lord, like my daughter Hannah. She's going to be coming out to teach the women for the Christmas event at Calvary Costa Mesa. That's pretty cool. Got that notice this week. I was like, really stoked. Like, wow, Hannah's coming. Like, she's the main speaker. She's gonna, you know, she did the father-daughter breakfast like 15 years ago with the Cunningham girls and when she was in junior high. And now she's coming back, the pastor's wife in her early 30s, and she's the main speaker. I can't tell you how proud and how happy that makes me as a dad that she followed those ways of the Lord. But as even recently shared, at two, she told me she'd given her life to the Lord. At seven, she was water baptized, Oceanside Pier there with me and Pastor Brad Lambert. And then she got rebaptized when she was 15 by her own will, she said, at a high school camp at Green Valley. And then, you know, went to Vanguard, did all these things. And so it's really hard for Hannah to have a flashpoint of a profound conversion in her life. She just kind of was set apart like Samuel the prophet. And some people are like that. Like Timothy, it says, raised in the faith, the scriptures from the grandmother and the mother. But then some people are like Saul, where they were one way the day before Christ, and they're a completely different way the next day. And that person you really see where you live the life in the world in the darkness, and you give your life to Christ, he'll deliver you from certain things. He'll take away certain desires. You might have hated someone, and you went forward to the Harvest Crusade, and suddenly you realize he took that hate from you. He let it go. 
you might have just been the biggest drug addict ever, and it's the craziest thing, but supernaturally, you're not tempted by drugs anymore or whatever, and you're, you're delivered. But there will still be things. And if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. I remember hearing of an elder in a church who was 80 and committed adultery against his wife when he was 80. And I remember thinking, like, who commits adultery against their wife when they're 80? That's like being at the, you're almost like the finish line. Like, you know, you're like right there, and all of a sudden you get out of your lane. You're like, like, like you're just disqualified on the last five feet before you hit the wire. But I'll tell you what I thought about that is, take heed. Just do, do not overestimate good in you, and do not underestimate evil in you. For the, the, the flesh and the spirit, they war against each other. So again, in, our, in my own experiences of life, in your experiences of life, and you're thinking of yours right now as we're talking, we realize we can have victory for years, but if we're not careful, the, the Amorites might show up out of nowhere, like, oh, what are the Amorites doing here after 30 years knocking on my door? They'll show up. The Kenites, whatever, they'll, the Sidonianites. So we have to always be on guard. And then we also realize, even if you feel like we've been completely delivered, because we really believe, we should, that if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. And I truly believe that. So when I'm wrestling with anger and frustration or whatever I might be wrestling with, I, I realize it's not the Lord, it's me. Like, the Lord's able to deliver me from this. So this is my pride, and this is me being a son of Adam, just going, like, I'm going to, no. Like, I'm, the Bible says when we're tempted, don't ever say the Lord tempts you. It's, it's us. It's, it's within us. But in this context here, culturally, they're surrounded by people who are allowed by the Lord to be an irritant and to be, if you will, like a thorn in the flesh, not, not like a physical thorn in the flesh like Paul had in Corinthians, but more like, a, like just something there, just someone that's always there and that you can't shake. They're your neighbor, and they're going to provoke you to anger. They're going to provoke you to lust, or, or they're barking dog all night, or whatever it is. It's, it's just it, your, your boss has just lent you the, the, the divorce that's not really divorce because you have to see him at these things and the exchanging of the children. And, and even if there's court-pointed people that are there to do the handoff, it's just like it's just there. There are things in life, though the Lord delivers us from our sins and all that we fall into, we realize in the human experience, there are things that will tempt us and will be a point of vulnerability and weakness from here to eternity in our life. We're going to be vulnerable in certain areas in general. And if we struggle in those areas, it's not that the Lord hasn't delivered us, can't deliver us. It's more like the Lord testing us to show us what's in us. Because it's not like the Lord doesn't know what's in us. I remember years ago, Pastor Chuck Smith saying, you might be disappointed with your actions, but the Lord is never disappointed with your actions because you're not caught off guard. Like when your children disappoint you, your adult children, or your parents disappoint you when you're younger or whatever it might be, when you're disappointed in someone, it's because you are caught off guard. The Lord's not caught off guard, but what we do, we might be looking in the mirror and go like, how did I get here? The Lord's not like that. So when we talk about being tested, it's really the Lord's opportunity for us to see what's in us and to grow and learn from it and as I mentioned Tuesday night, wherever our failures have been, we're pretty much guaranteed a rematch. It may not be exactly the same situation, this guy that way, this woman that way, this money, this theft, this thing, this lie that way. Might not be exactly the same thing, but in principle, it's going to be essentially the same test. To deny Christ or whatever it might be. And so we get tested. 
So just because we give our life to Christ, th- that's why it's so, so dangerous when people are like, give your life to Christ, you'll never have problems. It's like, actually, you may, you'll have probably more problems. Robert Toller, who attended here for years, this church, is a wonderful man of God. The year he and his wife gave, him and Janice gave their life to the Lord at the same time, back in the tent days, kind of, they, their life began to be just a series of trials and challenges, and their special needs son was born that they caught him off guard, and God's blessed them with Zach, who's amazing. I love Zach. But they just said, like, you know, that when they received Christ, they understood that Christ, it's about being saved from our sins, and it's a life upward call of God. When people preach Christ like, hey, you'll never have a bad day, like Pastor Chuck would say again, what you catch them with, you got to keep them with. So if you catch people with it every day sunny, you're not going to keep them very long because every day is not sunny. For all those who live to, seek to live God in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul went through the first round of church plants and said, through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. Life is not easy. And in James, when he started that first letter, he said, why do you think it's strange, the fiery trial that's allowed in your life to test you? It's, it's there to produce maturity. We're all going to have trials like we've talked about recently, but for, when we give our life to Christ... We are saved, and we have eternal life, and we have a joy unspeakable, and we have abundant life, but we have a bullseye on us, and we are now in this battle for the kingdom of God, which we're getting to in just a moment in the text. But we realize that God allowed these people to remain, to test them, and it says to teach his people war. Now, in the context for them, it was real war. It was an unfinished war. It was an unfinished war. It's unresolved. The children of Israel need to finish what was entrusted to them based upon the promises of God and the power of God with obedience to God. It was an unfinished war. But a generation arose that didn't know the Lord or the things of the Lord, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And when people don't care about the Lord and everyone does what's right in their own eyes, they usually they don't develop fiber and backbone and character for contending for what's right and conflicts for what's right. They tend to capitulate and surrender what's right with compromises that are not good compromises. So it's a combination. We have a lawless society here in this text. We have people that are adjutants and irritants that God has promised deliverance from, but he hasn't delivered them from them because they've settled for less and God's testing them and proving them. And he's, he wants to teach those that are willing how to contend and fight the good fight, to teach them war. This is why it's so important we raise up our children to understand that life is a spiritual battle. When we coddle and enable our kids, older generation, most of us now, and entitle them and enable them, we really set them up to not do well in the journey. Your kids need to have refs that work against them. They need to know bad calls. They need to know what it's like to have teachers that just don't like them. You cannot protect your kids from reality. We don't all get a participation award when we go to the real world. We get fired sometimes for being blamed for what someone else did. Maybe it's even the boss's kid. Life is unfair, and there is a battle. And we have a very brief window to raise our kids to, to know truth, right, and wrong and entrust them to trust in the Lord when they go out there that they can stand. But there's going to be conflict for light, goodness, and what's right. 
And we have to prepare them for that so they can stand. Because they can't call a timeout and call mommy and daddy because they're having a bad day the second week at work at Del Taco. It just, it's the reality. So we have to teach our children how to stand for the Lord. We have to learn how to stand for the Lord and we, how to contend for what's true, how to obey the Lord in difficult situations. It's so challenging for us as adults and even in the, maybe the back third of life. We know how hard it is to, to hold fast the faith and the good things and to take the right stand and to stand for what's right and how challenging that is at work at times, how challenging it is in the neighborhood at times. But how much more so for our children as they're arising and our children's children in a time where everyone does what's right in their own eyes and they're not taught about the Lord or the things of the Lord or why they inherited such a great nation in his foundational principles that have been removed. So there's a reality of a society. There's a reality of adjutants and things that are there to test us. And it, there's the need to, to learn war, to know war. And be tested if we're willing to stand up for what's right and fight the good fight. Which really brings us to this, this key concept in this text that we read is, we're either going to contend for the faith and what's right, or we're going to compromise the faith and settle for what's wrong. And this is the same in every generation. We're either going to contend for what's right, and our life is going to be aligned to do what's right. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our perspectives are going to be moving toward to do what's right and pleasing the sight of the Lord, or we're going to capitulate and surrender things. When our son Luke went to college at Orange County OCC Junior College, he had all kinds of conflicts with professors, fellow students, exchange students, hostile, very hostile emails that I saw in blogs from um, students, foreign students, attacking him for his faith and stuff because he showed me, so I know I'm an eyewitness. But Luke had to determine when he went to college, kind of like John MacArthur when he said that you, once you surrender the first hill, all the other ones fall. So the first hill is the hill to die on, if you remember when John MacArthur said that last year. Luke has that same mindset that, why would I compromise that? So he had these strong convictions at OCC. Well, then when he went to Grand Canyon University in Arizona, you know, he had, it's a Christian college, and so he's got the openly gay guy in his dorm. He's got the people that go drinking every night and on Saturday nights, and they go to Hillsong or whatever church on Sunday morning. And they're, they're oh, yeah, praise Jesus. I'm Southern Baptist, but, yeah, she should get an abortion, whatever. And so all these compromising things that, the next generation has in their thought process, churchy kids. Man, Luke was engaging of them. His communist professor, and yes, he had a communist professor at GCU, his classmates, and his convictions, he refused to capitulate. And people are like, you're so legalistic. He's like, well, what's legalistic about not going out and getting drunk before I go to church the next day? Please explain to me what that means, how you're coming up with legalistic. You're just harsh. Because, you, you know, you don't think uh, this is this thing. It's, it's, it's a human being. This is never going to be right. It's never going to be, the, the, it's not going to be God's thing. Like, Luke, Luke argued stronger pro-life positions with me than me. And, I, and you know, Luke's the smartest guy in the room. And I, I could not, he gives the strongest argument for the validity of every single life ever conceived. And no one's right to take it. It is incredible how smart he is. 
I remember his three grandparents from Jennifer's side, they're all geniuses, like literally geniuses. Jennifer's uncle, dad, and aunt. And Luke has it. But he's a genius for Jesus. And, you, and just even now, like the stuff he sends me. See, he didn't surrender then. He doesn't surrender now. Because you're contending for the faith. He used to write these devotionals that were polemics, if you will, for what his generation was doing as they're going to church and going to Christian college and sleeping around and doing all these things. And he'd write these things. And even, I mean, he even sent me one. He even sent me one today. Like he sent me one today. Like this little polemic about something. And what you learn is, if you purpose in your heart like Daniel in Babylon, chapter 1, in the land of captivity, being stripped of your identity, your ethnicity, everything, your language, your God, but you purpose in your heart not to defy yourself, if you get Daniel chapter 1 right, you'll get the whole book right. And you'll be one of the greatest prophets of all time. And God will show you things to come for all eternity. If you recognize as a Jew, you don't eat those foods according to the dietary law under your covenant. See, it is the first hill, isn't it? It's the first hill. It's the first hill. If you hold the convictions on the first hill, you'll hold the conviction on all the hills. Now, I'm not talking so much about social things, what we've been through with the pandemic. I'm talking about biblical things, the word of God, the gospel. Is God's word God's word? Holy men of God spoke. Has God moved them? Or is God's word men, earthly men and women speaking about God? Because that's what the progressive liberals think. They think it's just people talking about God so they can pick and choose. But we believe it's God's word. God inspired. God breathed. It's not men talking about God, how they think God is, like philosophers in religious writings. It's God spoke in various times, in various ways, in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things. That's, that's conviction and that's contending. So we realize for us in the latter parts of our life and the younger people here on the front part of your life, we understand when Jude says in chapter, verse 3 of the book of Jude, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered. Contend earnestly for the faith. Contend means to engage. It means to contend in the marketplace of thought for truth. Peter would write to us in 1 Peter 3.16, to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be prepared to give anyone a reason for the hope that's in us in meekness and sincerity, in fear and reverence. To be ready. We're told that Paul the Apostle reasoned with his culture his generation, the Jews and the Gentiles, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He made no apologies from the scriptures. He came from the authority of the scriptures. So there on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he can talk about their God, the unknown God. He could get together with the philosophers and he can say, I declare him to you now, this God. And even your own prophets, he can quote their prophets and say, this is what they say, but I'm telling you, God has appointed a day when he will judge all men through the one he's appointed, the man Christ Jesus, who he raised from the grave. And in that statement, like any of our kids at a college campus speaking up for Jesus, and by the way, guys, you younger kids, if you're ever on a college campus, or older people, and you get to speak up for Jesus, it is one of the most rewarding things you'll ever do in your life. It's the best feeling. 
When you stand up, my wife went to college at UCSD before she knew me, and there was a Christian that would stand up and, and challenge the falsehoods of the professor when he was talking against the Bible and the things of the Bible. He challenged that professor publicly, and it inspired my wife. Where does that courage come from? From people who stand on the first hill and refuse to capitulate and compromise, who are willing to contend for the faith and sanctify the Lord God and give a reason for the hope that's in them. That's where it comes from. So you have to decide when you step into eternity, what's the, what's the, the playbook going to say? What's the video going to say, the, the replay? Did we sanctify the Lord God? Did we contend for the faith? Did, when we were tested, did we know war? Because Paul said at the end of his life, listen, very important, I have fought the good fight. He didn't say I'm continuing to fight the good fight. I will fight a good fight. It's past tense. When you know it's over, like terminal or you're fading, or you just know, maybe you fade slowly when you're very old, or maybe you got something terminal, or you're going back in for a surgery, and you don't know how it's going to go, and you don't come out of that surgery. We want the legacy to be said that we have fought the good fight. You don't want to be on your deathbed thinking, like, I didn't really fight the good fight. I kind of walked away from it. I was pretty weak. I was pretty soft, actually. I was like, ah, oh, I just kind of. I once heard someone say, just write what they want you to say and just do what they want you to do and then just go on from it. And in principle, that might look good. Like, just say what they want to hear, right? Just say what they want to hear. But the problem is, that's a little compromise. And that little compromise, because you're compromising what your convictions are, unlike our son Luke, it gets easier to compromise those convictions each step of the way in the journey of life. So you let that little thing go, then, then you let this thing go. So if you, if you eat the defiled food, then it's easier to just look for the, the, go for the pagan woman in the court of Babylon. And you're no prophet, and you're certainly not going to be able to outlast the lions in, in the den on an overnight sleepover. You see, it all adds up. It all goes. So we want to go to say, I fought the good fight. Our, our fight's a spiritual fight. There's no way around it. We want to fight on our knees in prayer, but we need to contend for the truth, and we need to speak up when the truth needs to be spoken. We're never going to live in a world where we're not surrounded by Amorites, Canaanites, Jebusites, and Kenzanites, and Sidonianites. They're at work, they're at home, they're in our family, they're above us, they're beside us, they're below us, they're all around us. We can't just go be a monk somewhere and think we can escape that. Even during the Reformation time, there's nowhere to hide when their state church is trying to tell you what to do and what you can believe and what you can't believe and ripping your tongue out and burning it at the stake. There's just nowhere to hide. So we want a purpose in our heart, whether we're 60 or 16, like Daniel, not to defile ourselves with the things that are contrary to the kingdom of God and the work of God in our life. And if we have, the sooner we get rid of it, the better. Because those things become strongholds. We really need to know when we get to the end of the journey that we can truly look anyone in the eyes and say, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And we let the Savior set us free in all the things that came along our way in our journey. So it really is about contending for the faith or compromising the faith. And I don't need to tell you all the people, have, all the organizations that have compromised the faith and where are they now. You, you, you become impotent. You lose power. 
You, you surrender. When you surrender holiness and you surrender truth, you surrender the high ground, you lose everything. You're just impotent. The building's just a, a building. It's not the church anymore. It's not really a house of worship. So we're all being tested to hold fast to the convictions of truth and to purpose in our heart, not to defile ourselves, to, to sanctify the Lord God in our heart and be willing to contend for the faith when it needs to be contended. And when you're contending for the faith, you hold the high moral ground for all the universe. That's the subtle difference, and it's not that subtle sometimes between politics. Because when you contend for politics, you may not be contending for the faith. So you may not hold the high ground. Politics is temporal kingdoms. The word of God's eternal kingdoms. And there's times for sure where they engage each other. But if you're going down, go down for the cross. Don't go down for politics. Because there'll just be another politician after you're gone. And there's no politician waiting for you. They never said of any president, he's the good shepherd. Or he's the resurrection of the life, right? So that's just good to know. We all have opinions, and most of them don't even matter. That's why it says that God be true and every man a liar. The word of God is the final authority. And that's what we're contending for. Now, the last thing we see tonight is where it says of, so we have to decide, you know, it was all a test, and then it's contending or compromising. And they compromise, you know, they, they let their daughters marry these men, they let their men marry these daughters, and the, the godly didn't elevate the ungodly, the ungodly brought them down. And we all understand, especially the older people, how that works in life, because that's just science, it's proven. But the last thing we see here tonight is Othniel. So in this environment, Othniel, the son-in-law of, Josh, of uh, Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb were the two spies that came back with a positive report. They're the only two that over the age of 20 that came out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, go into the promised land. They're the only two. They're great warriors, great leaders. They're amazing. Caleb's an amazing man. His daughter married Othniel, who was the cousin. So here's Othniel, and he marries Caleb's daughter. We talked about this Tuesday. It's like, it's almost like, it's like if Caleb was a king, then this would be the prince and the princess. They're royalty. And we're not just saying that because like attracts like. And she's the daughter of this amazing man of God, Caleb. And he's the nephew over here. And he marries her. And what happens? They're like-minded. And what do they do? They go on to become the first great leaders of Israel in a post-Joshua world. Let me say that again. They go on to become the first great leaders, spiritually, morally, politically, in a post-Joshua world in the promised land. When everyone did what was right in their own eyes, when there arose a generation that didn't know about the Lord, it was Othniel that made himself available, just like his father-in-law did. It was Othniel who was fearless, just like his father-in-law, and probably like his wife. And together, these two were yoked together in marriage, and when the nation and when God's people needed godly spiritual leadership, these two, Othniel and his wife, made themselves available and they changed their world while being surrounded by Canaanites, Amorites, Jebusites, and Sidonites. While people are sacrificing children to false gods, while they're in unbridled lust beyond description, they were not immune from that culture. They rose up in that culture and they shone in that culture. And they led the way for their generation. They received a legacy of faith like a relay race, and they grabbed that baton, and they ran it in their life. 
When everyone else was dumbing down and going soft, they rose up and they contended and they fought the good fight and they were willing to risk their lives to do it. In chapter five in Deborah's song, she's gonna say, those men who risked their life in a positive way and Othniel, we saw it with Ehud as well and Shamshagar, the first three judges, they all risked their life. We need to live for something that's worth dying for. We need to live for something that's worth dying for. And the kingdom of God and the gospel message is worth dying for. But as been said so many times, it would seem easier to die for Christ than to live for Christ sometimes. And Othniel and his wife rose up and he led and God put his spirit upon him. And in the Old Testament, we don't really have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the spirit coming upon people. Once Jesus rose from the grave and the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit fell. The Bible makes a distinction that the Holy Spirit comes in people. We're taught clearly that when we give our life to Christ and we're born again, Jesus said you must be born again in Nicodemus. We're born of the flesh with our mother, but then when we give our life to Christ, we're born of the spirit where the Spirit of God literally comes in us. That's how we're told we're the temple of God. Even as the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple back in the day, we are the temple, and God's Spirit comes in us. So before we give our life to Christ, we're told by Jesus that the Holy Spirit is with us. In the Greek, that's para. So he's around us. There's nothing God doesn't know, but the Holy Spirit's convicting us. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come to the world, and we convict the world, non-believers, of sin, righteousness, and judgment all in relation to Christ. So when the gospel is being preached and someone's not saved or they're hearing the truth, there's a conviction. It's a supernatural work. And the word of God's piercing bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it's a supernatural work and it's happening. And like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And Paul would say to the Philippian jailer there in the book of Acts, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And he responded and received Christ. So by the time John writes his gospel, the gospel of John, he says, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, not born of flesh and blood or born of men, but born of God, born of the Spirit. So the Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment outside the body. But when we receive Christ, we're born again, and we pass from death to life, from Adam to Christ, the second Adam. We're born again, and the light's on. But then we're also told, so now he's in us, and New Testament doctrine makes very clear that's what happens. So if you're born again tonight, Jesus Christ is in each of us by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is there to lead and guide us. In fact, Jesus said he would lead and guide us in all things. And he leads us. He's the anointing that leads us. But then we're told in the book of Acts that Jesus said that the Spirit would come upon them, the Acts, the apostles in the book of Acts, and that's called the epi. Well, that seems, that's definitely something more than just being in. That's like an overflowing and a pawn. Also, we're told in the New Testament that we have the mind of the Spirit. We talk about the natural mind, the natural man, the carnal man, and the spiritual man. So there's people that are born again that are carnal. That's a carnal man. There's the natural man, people that aren't born again at all, women that are not born again. And then there's a spiritual woman who's born again, or the spiritual man who's born again. So as soon as we're born again in the Spirit, then God illuminates things for us. That's why someone can look at the Bible, and it's like trying to read... Japanese, if you don't read Japanese. It's like, it's a spiritual book. Now, it's truth, but it's a spiritual book. 
And when you're born again in the Spirit, then suddenly all of a sudden it just comes alive. It, it, it's, it's, it's the words of eternity coming alive to one who's been born again for eternity. And it's living and powerful, and it, it, it transforms us. It thoroughly equips us for every good work to guide us, direct us, reprove us, and correct us. That's what happens. So when we think about Othniel, in his day, the Spirit came upon him. He became a supernatural man. He did amazing things. The Spirit came upon him. He judged Israel, so he provided great leadership, spiritual leadership, in the time it was needed. He went out to war. He knew war. He wasn't afraid of war. I mean, when, you, when your father-in-law is Caleb, you might know something about war. Caleb was a bad dude. His father-in-law, like, how do you even live up to your father-in-law? But he knew war now. See, Caleb fought his battles. He's in eternity with Joshua. But it's time for Othniel to fight his battles because someone has to lead a generation where people do what's right in their own eyes and they know not the Lord. Someone has to rise up and contend. In his case, it was military. In our case, it's spiritual because we're the church, not Israel in the Old Testament. But the same principles there, to be women of courage, men of courage, to rise up, to provide clear direction you know, when Luke was at college, for all the persecution he ever got, I can't tell you how many people sought him out for direction and counsel in life because of the integrity that he had. Students came to him all the time. So can, people still call him all the time. People came to him all the time because we're told not to walk in the path of the scornful, but we're to sit with those who are with wisdom, to surround ourselves with godly people and godly influences and when, you, when you're contending, you have the character, you have the conviction, and people know they can trust it. We want people, we've talked about the book of Judges for all of us in this room tonight. We want to be like Deborah and Othniel and Othniel's wife. We want to be the people that the people look to as leaders in a time when everyone does what's right in their own eyes and a generation arose that knows not the Lord and there's such confusion and chaos. We want to be these kind of people. We want to be compassionate on the, the, the neighbors and the agitations. But we want to be people of conviction and character that we know the difference that our daughters don't marry their sons and their, our sons don't marry their daughters. Because even the New Testament says to be unequally yoked is a bad thing to do. And I'm not talking about marriage so much as but just ideologies, philosophies, decision-making, and how we see things. Because we see things according to the kingdom. So he went out to war. He wasn't afraid to fight the good fight. When Caleb... Excuse me, when Othniel ended his life, like his father-in-law Caleb, it could be said, he fought the good fight. In an entire generation of all this stuff going on, in this first 40 years, who is the only person listed that fought the good fight? It is Othniel, the first great judge in a dark time. So if we've entered a dark time, would to God that we'd be the first great judge, Deborah or Othniel or whoever we are. And it says, his hand prevailed. He brought victory. Their enemy is a Mesopotamian king. Ours is the kingdom of darkness. So we fight our battles on our knees. We fight our battles in prayer. We love people. We serve people. We honor Jesus. Respect the king. Honor the king. All these things we do the best we can. But in the end, we bow the knee to Jesus. And we're going to always be under his authority, which is the final authority for the Great Commission, the whole counsel of God. We hold the keys to the kingdom. And we always will. We always will because we're the church and it's entrusted to us. So I look at this life of, of Othniel and his legacy as an extension of what really came from the book of Joshua and even the books of Moses before that. But the thing that really distinguishes him more so from Joshua and even Caleb, his father-in-law, is it says the Spirit of God came upon him. And that brings us closer to us in the New Testament.
that Jesus said that we seek, knock, and ask, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who do so in Luke 11? So to me, that's really the key. It's not about being worked up about things I have no control over. It's about seeking, knocking, and asking to be more of a spirit-filled man with the Spirit upon me that I'm walking in the full power and the mind of the Lord and the fruit of the Spirit with love, self-control, and these things and bringing honor to Christ for such a time as this. And that when I come to the body of Christ, those gifts of the Spirit are working through me. When I shine at work, that Spirit's upon me, that people see it. And when I'm thinking about decisions, I'm thinking with the mind of Christ. And if we belong to Jesus, this closing thought, we belong to Jesus, we have the mind of Christ, we have the fruit of the Spirit, we have the gifts of the Spirit, we have the baptism of the Spirit. And whatever denominations distinguish that, know this, E, all the above. We want all the above. We want all the above. So don't worry about dividing lines of what distinguishes one thing from another. Just say all of it as much as you want to give. And let God put his spirit upon us to be leaders, truly leaders who contend and fight the good fight in love, humility, and with spiritual weapons. Prayer and the love of Christ.